Philippians chapter 1 this morning. Philippians chapter 1. We are starting a brand new series. It is our regular habit to work through books of the Bible sequentially as we seek to hear what God has to say to us, what he has to teach us. We believe his word changes our lives. So we seek to submit to it week after week and we are delighted as we see his word working. I, I trust that you will join us tonight and hear from Sam and Penny Sue. We are grateful to have them with us. Um, we're thankful that they can be here um, and give us an update of their ministry. Do you know why the Leaning Tower of Pisa leans? Maybe you do. You can maybe even guess based on the title of the sermon. It's built on the wrong foundation. It's built on the wrong kind of land or soil. It's built on a marsh. Pisa means marshy. And because it does not have the proper foundation, it's not able to remain stable. At one point, they concluded that every year they found that it would lean another 120th of an inch. Not long ago, tourists could see that they had ropes all around that structure holding it in place until they could do something further about its continued and dangerous leaning. Now, if left unaddressed in just a few years, that famous structure would collapse. What we see in this is that if you want to build something of lasting value, it must be built on a sure, on a solid, on a secure foundation. And the same is true for us spiritually. You can be a member of a church, a member of this church. You can serve in various programs and ministries of the church. You can serve in the community and be kind to those in need. Outwardly, you can look like you're committed to doing all of the right things. But doing things is not the right foundation. A thriving walk with God is built from the inside out. You can only find joy and contentment and stability through the coming challenges of life as you anchor your mind, your affections, your will to Christ. Our text this morning in these two verses will teach us that our foundation for joy is found in our relationship to Christ and his people. So think with me for a moment. Where are you seeking to find true joy in your life? As we begin this series, as we begin thinking about what Christ is to be doing in our life, evaluate where you need to grow. Where do you tend to seek for joy? Where do you tend to put your hope for stability in life? What are you chasing? What do you think that catching that thing will offer you, will provide to you? Are you a contented person? Do you have conditions in your mind that must be met before you can be at peace? Maybe you're thinking through things like, I can find joy when my children will be a success or when they seem successful or they reach their goals or my goals for them. Will you find joy when others recognize and affirm you? 
Will you find joy when you gain the next promotion or when every relationship that is currently at strife is healed and made whole? Those things seem like they will provide to us happiness. But that's a mirage. It's an illusion that's created by our own self-deceptive hearts that try to convince us that those things are what is worth having. Those things are what we need to have lasting joy. But the joy that he offers, that we see Paul exhibit and teach us about in this letter is not the outward superficial happiness that we all tend to pursue in this life. It's the rock-solid conviction It's the mindset that our joy and contentment is found in Christ alone. That goes beyond just mere words and affirmation. It's a deep-rooted conviction that Paul can't stop talking about. Let's see what we're Uh, What Paul teaches us here now in Philippians 1, 1 and 2. And I think you will see these themes already appear in just these first two introductory verses. Verse 1, this is God's word to us. Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's ask for his help as we begin to look at this text together. Father, we confess our need. Lord, we confess that we seek to find happiness, contentment, satisfaction in the things of this life that we can see. We confess that we walk by sight. We recognize that like sheep, we go astray continually. We agree with you that our hearts are deceitful and desperately sick. And yet again, in your word, we find the solution, the answer, the hope. It's found only in Christ. So may we hear Paul well this morning. May our hearts respond. We need them to be changed. Our values need to be challenged. Our hearts need to turn to you again. So do the work that only you can do. In Jesus' name. Amen. Paul's letter to this Philippian church is a marvelous presentation of several important themes. It's fascinating how Paul in just two verses touches on every one of those themes. We'll see that as we go along this morning. Paul is primarily focused in this letter on urging these Philippian believers to embrace the humble mindset of Christ as they face opposition from an unbelieving world, as they face internal strife even amongst themselves. The Spirit of Christ wants to convince us that embracing this Christ-centered mindset together with God's people leads us to joyful stability even in the midst of hardship. This morning, we'll consider three ways that Paul demonstrates how joy is the result of a Christ-centered mindset. First, joy is found in humble service for Christ. Now, as was the standard in any letter in the first century, Paul identifies himself right away at the beginning as the author. It's like he's introducing himself. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants, or that word could be slaves, or it could be translated as bondservants of Christ Jesus. Now, why does Paul include Timothy here? 
We'll deal with this for just a moment. Paul demonstrates throughout the letter that he's the sole author. So why talk to us at all about Timothy? It's not as if Timothy has co-authored the letter. Now, there's likely two reasons. First, Paul is already demonstrating one of the main themes here. No Christian is an island, not even Paul. If we're going to endure the challenges of the Christian life in a world that is no friend to grace, we need other believers to walk with us. We see that theme over and over and over again in Philippians. We need other believers. Gospel partnership is an important and recurring theme in this book. Second, Paul will also demonstrate in this letter the power of a godly example. This is most clearly seen in what he writes of Christ in chapter 2. That famous passage, we referred to it even already this morning in our service. Have this mind in you, which is yours in Christ. He'll also refer to his own example, Epaphroditus' example, one of the ministers that worked there in the Philippian church. And he will again focus on Timothy's example. You see, God intends for us to follow godly men and women who are modeling what it looks like to sacrificially give their lives for him. Often, the stronger our example, the stronger our faith will be. If we choose to be influenced by godly examples, it will strengthen our faith. Think of it. People inherently seek to emulate those they look up to. We're not surprised to see a child following right after one of his parents. Looking and acting, having mannerisms, just like the person they see and love and look up to each and every day. And think of how God wrote this into the DNA of the church as we see leaders. He's addressing the overseers and the deacons. We see leaders mentioned here in verse 1. This is true of our families as well. Men, this is why your walk is so vital in the home. For the spiritual health of your family. For the spiritual health of our church family. God intends for you to be a godly model. The stronger your example, the stronger the faith of those watching will be. Ultimately, every believer's example is our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul puts him at the very center of this letter. Next, next, notice how Paul describes himself and Timothy. They are servants of Christ Jesus. Servant isn't the wrong rendering. It's an accurate rendering into the English of that Greek word. And yet it doesn't fully capture the force of what Paul is actually writing. He considers himself a slave of Jesus Christ. It's interesting to note that this is how the demon-possessed slave girl that they meet in Acts 16 when this church is established. It's interesting to note that's what she calls Paul and Silas. She says these men are servants or slaves of the Most High God. She recognizes their allegiance. Now this title that Paul chooses for himself would have grabbed the Philippians' attention immediately. This isn't an often used title that Paul uses for himself. Most often we hear himself, uh, he calls himself an apostle of Jesus Christ, a messenger. 
But here he says slave on purpose. And note, this isn't how a learned rabbi would describe himself. This would be attention grabbing. A slave? But Paul is modeling a mindset he intends for the Philippians to embrace. That were to embrace. Do you see yourself as a slave of Christ? Owned by him. He's your master, your commander, your Lord. Do you live that way? Does he have the right to send you wherever he desires, even if it's into harm's way? Are you listening to his commands as a slave would hear his master's words? God intends for us to see ourselves as his slaves. Paul writes in Romans 6, 20 and through 22, when you were slaves to sin, we're slaves no matter which side we choose. We were first slaves to sin. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. And what benefit did you reap at that time from the things that you are now ashamed of? Sin enslaved you and led you to shame. Those things result in death. Verse 22, but now you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. This teaches us a truth, this title. We're all enslaved to something or someone. An old folk song says, you gotta serve somebody and we all do. It may be for you that you're enslaved to your pleasures. You're always looking for the next emotional high. Fun or ease is what your heart craves. You're not a disciplined person because you give in to what you want in the moment. Perhaps you're enslaved to your sensual desires. Maybe you're a slave of achievement or status. You crave, you long for recognition and affirm and people to affirm you because you're not secure in your identity in Christ. You may be enslaved to security or fear. You're often filled with anxiety, worry of what may happen. But consider what God wants you, who God wants you to be enslaved to. Think of how this master strengthens and gives to you. He doesn't take from you. Jesus liberates us from all those things. He's our master. He's responsible. Think of how this mindset frees you. I don't have to be anxious. He's in charge. He's in control. He alone can fill my heart with true pleasure that does not end. As your relationship with him deepens, you'll find there's no greater security or lasting joy and contentment than can be found in him. Think of it. Think of how Paul demonstrates this in that scene in Acts 16. He's put in prison for healing this slave girl, ruining this man's uh, income. So they throw him into prison and what do Paul and Silas do? They pray and they sing so that all can hear. How does somebody sing in prison? Is what you're chasing able to produce that kind of peace and contentment? 
The foundation of a joyful mindset begins where your allegiance lies. Who's your master? Many people say they're Christians, but they live as though Christ has absolutely no claim on their life at all. Does that describe you? Imagine if you woke up tomorrow morning and you prayed, Lord Jesus, I am yours. I want to serve you at work. I want to serve you at home today. My career is yours. My plans are yours. My free time is yours. I am yours. How do you think seeing yourself as a slave of Christ would change the way you went about your day? What things would you be prevented from doing? What things would you be led to do that God has called you to do? Second, joy is sustained by our identity in Christ. Notice secondly to whom Paul is writing. He writes to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Now the title saint doesn't refer to some super spiritual person who deserves to be enshrined. That's not what we're talking about. It's actually a title for every believer. But notice that Paul chooses this title on purpose. He could have said a lot of different things. He could have said the church at Philippi. He could have said believers. But he calls them saints. This is actually a favorite title of Paul's. He uses it 40 times in the New Testament. He begins this letter and ends this letter with that title. What does that tell us? First, it teaches us, it reminds us of the righteousness that God has provided to us in Christ. Saints means those who are set apart or holy ones. And it's a holiness that we don't produce in ourselves. Because we are united to him through faith, we receive all the benefits of that relationship by being vitally connected to him. Abide in me. Jesus says. Paul explains this perhaps most clearly in chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. He says, For Christ's sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as garbage, as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And here's the clarification not having a righteousness, a holiness of my own. Not having a holiness that comes from the law. A holiness that can be achieved by my own performance. My own obedience. My own following of religion. But that which comes through faith. Dependence. Reliance on Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. So I want us to just pause and think of this title. Church family, do you understand the significance of the title saint with which you're to identify? You are his. Through faith, you've been declared holy, though in and of yourself, you're not a holy person. And you've been given a righteousness that is not your own at incredibly great, infinitely great cost to himself. Do you realize what this title says about you? It doesn't matter if you feel like you're holy or not. This is the truth of who we are. 
But secondly, that title then as saints, we're to continue to grow in Christ's likeness. We're to pursue the holiness for which we've been saved. Paul writes elsewhere, you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Tim Chester writes of how the gospel is to produce, continue to work godliness in us, even though we are already called saints. He says, as our faith grows in knowledge, so we will grow in godliness. The more we understand what God has done for us in Christ, the more we will love him and live for him. Do you hear what he says? The more we understand what God has done for us in Christ, it's not just fill in the blank answers. Do you understand what God has done for you in Christ? As that continues to grow, your love and your obedience will also grow. A true gospel mindset will always produce true gospel obedience. Are you growing in godliness because you understand what Christ has made you and intends you to become? Because you're responding to that work. I'm made righteous in Christ, therefore I obey. Thirdly, consider how this reminds us that in the church there are no super Christians. Every believer has equal standing in Christ. He says to all the saints in Philippi, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Peter explains it this way, but you all, it's a plural you. We miss that sometimes, but you all, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That means something, not because you're something, but because he's something. If you're his possession, you're to strive to his holiness. And he says why? That you all may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You're saints for a reason. Once you all were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do you see Paul is again modeling something of a theme in this letter. He describes himself. How did he describe himself? As a slave. How does he describe the Philippians who obviously need to hear more instruction? As saints. What's he doing? Paul takes a very lowly title and he describes this normal, ordinary gathering of believers with the exalted title of saints. He's counting others as more significant than himself. It's not some manipulative trick. He's saying, I'm looking at you how God looks at you and you are valued and loved and made holy. His mindset is shaped by Christ's. He views these believers as precious in the sight of a God who would spill his blood for them. Now practically for Paul, what does it look like to serve Christ? In this verse, it looks like service to others. He's serving for the saints at Philippi. We could see this as directional. I think that's right. We'll see that throughout the passage. 
Certainly this is part of the formal greeting, the author Paul to the recipients, the Philippians, but it also servants, slaves of God for the sake of the Philippian believers. He's investing his life. He's risking his safety, his health. For these believers, for their growth, their health, their stability. He's taking risks. Hear that. He's sacrificing. What do you sacrifice for the health and growth and stability of other believers? Are you on this planet so that you can gather up the most trinkets, the most earthly security? Where's your focus? R. Kent Hughes writes in The Discipline of a Godly Man about ministry. He says, quote, For those who claim the name of Christ, two distinct courses of life are available. One is to cultivate a small heart. This by far seems the safest way to go because it minimizes the sorrows of life. If our ambition is to dodge the troubles of human existence, then the formula is simple. Avoid entangling relationships. Do not give ourselves to others. If you open yourself to serving others, you will become susceptible to an index of sorrow scarcely imaginable to a shriveled heart. Enlarge and ennoble your ideas and your vulnerability will increase proportionately. Little hearts, though safe and protected, never contribute anything. No one benefits from their restricted sympathies and vision. On the other hand, the hearts that, embraced, that have embraced the disciplines of ministry possess the most joy and leave their heart print on the world. Paul demonstrates this so well throughout this letter. He gives himself sacrificially in service of others. From where did this mindset develop in him? Why is he so passionate about this? What motivates him? Because I need that kind of motivation. Don't you? Serving other people can be hard. So what keeps Paul's engine of service going? Do you know the only other place in this letter where Paul uses that word slave? It's in, it's in chapter 2, verse 7, where Paul describes what Jesus did for you and me. Christ made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a slave. Being made in human likeness, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The king of glory submits himself to his human creatures and allows them to take his human life, to serve them. Why does Paul insist on giving and risking his life in service because Christ gave his life for Paul. Why should you serve your God and others? Because Christ became a slave all the way to death, even death on a cross. Are you a person with a small heart or a person with a large heart, ready, willing, eager, to serve, to serve as Christ has served you. 
Theologian Rene Padilla shares the story of a conference he attended with John Stott in Argentina. They were speaking together and they both arrived at their destination on the day of a severe rainstorm. As they made their way to their room, they were shown to the room that they'd be sharing. They realized they needed to remove their shoes because of all the mud on them. Padilla recounted how he awoke the next morning. As he awoke, he heard the sound of brushing nearby. He got up and he realized that the internationally known author was cleaning his shoes. Shocked, he exclaimed, John, what are you doing? The Christian statesman responded, my dear friend, Jesus taught us to wash each other's feet. You do not need me to wash your feet, but I can brush your shoes. How would your Lord desire to use your service in the life of another brother or sister in Christ? Will you serve as you've been served? We've seen first that joy is found in humble service for Christ. Secondly, it is sustained by our identity in Christ. Finally, joy is dependent on the grace of Christ. We need his strength to find this kind of joy. Verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, this is a standard greeting that we might be tempted to rush right past. He says this, he writes this in most of his letters, but there is so much more here. We probably most often think of God's grace as his undeserved favor toward those who deserve only his wrath. And that's a correct understanding of God's saving grace. But here it seems that Paul is focused on God's grace in the sense of his supernatural enablement, his divine power, his strengthening to obey. And Paul opens and closes this letter asking God to give divine power to put into practice the truths that he's teaching. Now it's important at this point to recognize how Paul's greeting deviates, is contrasted, is different from the standard greeting of a first century letter. After identifying the author of the letter and the recipients, the writer would then extend a greeting most often wishing the recipient prosperity or good health. And that's missing from Paul's letter. Again, that absence would speak volumes. It's saying, Paul's not saying, you need more health, or you need more money, or you need some kind of security in this life. His focus is on the spiritual health of those to whom he's writing. And this is an important distinction in understanding the difference between happiness and joy. You see, happiness is delight in the successes and abundance that can be experienced in this life. Happiness is most often based on experiencing favorable circumstances. It disappears when circumstances turn. But God has promised to meet our needs. He offers us more than mere happiness. Commentator Gordon Fee explains in a profound sense, this greeting nicely represents Paul's larger theological perspective The sum total of God's activity toward his human creatures is found in the word grace. God has given himself to his people, bountifully and merciful in Christ. Nothing is deserved. Nothing can be earned. The sum total of those benefits as they are experienced by the recipients of God's grace is peace. Peace. 
Peace is that outworking of his grace in the life of a believer. One comes after the other. God's grace leads us to peace. Peace is that inner contentment and security that comes from understanding you've been made right with God through Jesus Christ and that nothing is more important than that. Not your health, not your wealth, not your family's well-being. Nothing is more important than your standing with a holy God. And if he will take care of that, then those other things will be added unto you. You can trust him to care for you no matter how those things work out. You see, this grace and peace must first be embraced vertically before it can be demonstrated horizontally. Stability, peace, and joy are found in understanding who you are, what God has done for you, and what he asks of you. As you know God's grace and peace in your life, it will then result, it will flow out to others. It first comes this way and then that way. You will be a more gracious person. You will be a more contented person. You'll have the means, the divine enablement to fight your worry, to fight those idols that you say will give me temporary highs of happiness. So is your life characterized by peace like this? If not, why not? What are you missing? Are you resting in his divine power? Are you trusting in his ability to rule over every circumstance? Are you casting your cares on him because you know he cares for you? Are you trusting him as the perfect shepherd who provides everything that you need? Do you know that his love will never allow anything into your life that he has not designed to strengthen and grow your faith? Do you trust him? Peace comes as you rest in Christ's strength. Now, we all want to be happy, but through this letter, God is offering us something greater than happiness. He's offering us joy. Joy is a persistent confidence in the character of God that transcends our circumstances and leads us to this sense of stability and contentment. Many Christians will tell you that Philippians is a book about joy, and that's partially right, but that's really a little bit too vague. Not specific enough. It's a letter that describes how a believer can have joy as a result of a Christ-like mindset. Do you see, Paul is not telling you, pursue joy. He's telling you, pursue Christ. And all of these things will come along behind, no matter what God allows in your life. Now, where in our passage this morning do you see the word joy mentioned? It's not there, is it? So is joy the right emphasis from this text? Well, I believe it is based on what's happening in the rest of the letter, based on the context. You see, Paul uses the word for joy either in a verb or noun form 13 times in this letter. He uses the word for thinking, mind, or mindset seven times. And Jesus Christ is the overwhelmingly dominant subject. 
He speaks of all three members of the Godhead, but Christ is overwhelmingly his focus. He refers to him by name, one of several names, or by pronoun almost 70 times. With just 104 verses in the letter, Jesus is Paul's overwhelming focus and the source of our joy, the foundation of our joy. What we see this morning is that joy develops, it comes, it's a result only as we view our lives through a Christ-centered mind, through a Christ-centered mindset. Don't you see, God didn't send his son so that you could be happy or prosperous or pleased with the meager trinkets of this life. He sent his son as the ultimate humble servant to die for you that you might have eternal joy with him forever. That you might grow up into him and be holy. That your life might be a model of what it means to serve even through hardship. Because he's provided eternal joy to you through Christ, you can have peace. You can have peace. You can be content, whether as Paul says, you've been brought low or you're abounding, whether you are full or hungry, whether you have abundance or you're facing great need. That's what's offered to you in this letter. This is the secret of how to rejoice even when you've been thrown into jail. Your identity is found in him so you can have joy. Your security is found in him. You can be confident that by his grace, he will supply your every physical need. Not want, but need. But more importantly, he will supply your every spiritual need. As you connect to him, as you have this Christ-centered mindset, You're willing to give yourself in service for others, even being taken advantage of because he gave himself as a servant for you. We're just scratching the surface of all that God wants to teach us in this wonderful letter. If you've recognized that you do not have the joy that God's spirit is offering to you, examine your foundations. Do you understand that you're a slave of Christ? There's contentment in that. Are you serving him with your life or yourself? Do you understand how God sees you? You are a saint, a holy one, a person made holy in Christ. Are you pursuing that end for which God has saved you? If you're not, you can't be joyful. You can't have peace. Chasing sin can be pleasing for a moment, but it will only ever leave you empty, and you know it. Are you vitally connected to the lives of other believers, looking not what you can receive in fellowship with them, but in what you can give? Are you serving others because they matter to him? I trust that you will see and live out this week what it means to find your joy in him and in service with his people. Let's pray. Now may our God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow 
with hope by the power of his Holy Spirit.